Well, I do want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We are continuing our series in the book of Daniel. And today we actually come to one of the more famous stories in the book of Daniel. One of the maybe more familiar stories in all the Bible. It is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, when we started this series, I told you that at least one of my goals in this series was to sort of disabuse you of the notion that the book of Daniel is filled with sort of good moralistic Sunday school stories, but not much else. And I think when we come to chapter three, this is a good case in point. The chapter uh, we're looking at today is a familiar story, as I said, but sometimes the sort of Sunday school version of the story actually differs quite a bit from the biblical account. And that actually does remind me of a story. It's a story that one of my professors told me a long time ago that is related to Daniel chapter 3. Now, I have to tell you that the professor who told me this story had quite a pronounced accent. And even though I don't do accents particularly well, I think the story works better for whatever reason with a bit of an accent. And, and the story is really just about uh, a young boy came home from, from church uh, one Sunday and he, and he came to his mom and his mom said, now, now son, uh, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And he said, oh, oh, mom, today I learned about Daniel and his houses. She said, Daniel and his houses? I'm not familiar with that one. How does it go? He said, oh, you know, mom, it's the one about my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. (laughs) Well, we're not learning about Daniel and his houses today, but we are learning about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery trial that they experienced as it's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, Just before I read Daniel 3 for you, I do actually need to say a brief word to those of you who did not like my pronunciation of Abednego uh, when we were in chapter one. Now, Abednego is actually a compound of two Aramaic words. It means the servant of Nebo. Abednego is the actual correct way to say that. But I have good intel that some of you simply could not get past that pronunciation. Oh, he said Abednego. So I will anglicize it for you. So fru kids, don't say I don't ever do anything for you. So let's read Daniel chapter 3 together. It says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace, into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods of worship, the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image that you have set up. Now Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They had answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out of and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, and their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, 
and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Again, it is a long story, but there's a a lot in here for us to learn from. Our series is called Kingdoms in Conflict. And the kingdoms we've been talking about are the kingdom of man or the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God. And this passage has something to teach us about how we are supposed to respond when the values of those two kingdoms clash. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to say two main things to you. I want to say, firstly, something about what we should expect as servants of God living in the kingdom of man. And then secondly, about how we should respond as God's servants living in the kingdom of man. So let's start by looking at what we should expect. And I would say we should expect to face pressure to conform to the world's ways and worship its idols. Now, back in week one, I pointed out that the the pressures we face in the kingdom of man take different shapes. Sometimes we are shown the carrot and we're enticed, and other times we're threatened with the stick. We are warned, we better do this or else. And back in chapter one, the enticement came through the offer of eating the king's food and drinking his wine. And in this chapter, it really comes through through the threat. If you do not worship this image, you'll be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. It's a nationwide decree. But even within this chapter, you can see some of the different ways that pressure gets applied. And by extension, it's it's the way that pressure is applied to us in our day as well. So it's not spiritualizing the text to say that we can and should expect to face our own sort of fiery trials When the the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of persecuted Christians who were scattered throughout some of the ancient provinces, he told them this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So these types of trials, trials by fire, as it were, shouldn't surprise us. It's not something strange that happens to us. So what does that pressure look like? The pressure that comes in the kingdom of man. The pressure to follow the world's ways and to worship its idols. Well, I would say the first kind of pressure that we might face is the pressure that comes from authority. And this is what we see in the first part of the chapter. The chapter begins by telling us King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, we're not really sure what to make of this image. It doesn't tell us specifically what the image was meant to depict. We know that its dimensions seem a little bit strange. If we convert the cubits to feet, it was 90 feet tall, but only nine feet wide. Now, maybe it had a a base of some sort. We do know that the Babylonians liked to build things. I mean, in this same region is the place that they first built the Tower of Babel. 
back in Genesis chapter 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar builds this image, this statue that the people were supposed to bow down to. So was it a statue of one of the Babylonian gods, maybe Marduk, the chief of the Babylonian gods, or was it a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself? In a lot of ways, that would make sense. So the statue was made, we're told, of gold from top to bottom. Now, not solid gold, but wood that was overlaid with gold. And think back to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the dream that we looked at last week in chapter 2. In that dream, there was an image that was made, and its head was gold, and the rest of its body was made up of different materials. The chest and the arms were made of silver. The midsection and thighs were made of bronze, and then the calves and the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And that dream was about the succession of kingdoms that was come. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that after him, these other kingdoms would arise. And so it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar has this massive statue of himself constructed entirely of gold as a way of saying, look, my kingdom is never coming to an end. So the official religion of Babylon was polytheism, the worship of many gods. But in practice, the way way that most nations functioned, their religion in practical terms was statism, the worship of the state. Your first allegiance in that kind of system then is not to your family, it's not to your God, it is to your overlord or your state, your ruler. And this hasn't gone away. Dictators of all shapes and sizes tend to set themselves up as the one that needs to be honored above all else. Now, we can't be sure that this golden image was Nebuchadnezzar, but he does dominate these opening verses. The passage actually goes out of its way to highlight the role that King Nebuchadnezzar played in all of this. The title, King Nebuchadnezzar, appears six times in the first seven verses. Now, what King Nebuchadnezzar did is not just set up this image that was to be worshipped, but he issued a decree that everyone must bow to it. And his decree reads like this in verses 4 and 5. It says, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, so everyone, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. See, that's the pressure that comes from authority. There is a royal decree. And sometimes the pressure we face comes from governmental authority. Sometimes it comes from an employer or some other authority. And there are times where our allegiance to God comes into conflict with what an authority might tell us to do. Now, I'm not advocating that we simply become rebels. We just defy authority because we just don't like submitting ourselves to to any kind of authority. On the whole, both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us that we are to subject ourselves to the ruling authorities. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority 
except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In a similar way, the Apostle Peter said this. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Goes on to say, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now remember, when Paul and Peter, when both of them wrote, they were living in the Roman Empire. They were living under the rule of a brutal Roman emperor. And Paul says, submit yourselves to those authorities. But having said that, there are times where we need to say no to what an authority might tell us to do. In the book of Acts, we read about the way the apostles responded when the authorities of the day forbade them from preaching the gospel. Acts chapter passage in Acts chapter 5 reads like this. It says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That's the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. See, there are times where our Christian conscience simply will not allow us to do what an authority tells us to do. There will, come time, there will be times where we have to say we must obey God rather than man. So that's the pressure from authority. And there are times where we need to say no to it, just as these three did. There's a second kind of pressure that we often experience, and that is the pressure of conformity. So Nebuchadnezzar has set up his statue. He's issued his decree. And then verse 7 tells us what happened at the sound of the music. It says, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is what everyone did. This was an impressive show that took place on the plains of Dura. All the various government officials, all the dignitaries are there. All the people who are under their dominion are gathered together. They're assembled. The band starts playing and all the people on cue bow down and start worshiping this golden image. I mean, how could you possibly resist that kind of social pressure? And social pressure can be a powerful force. You know, that same kind of pressure to conform exists today. Maybe not always as overtly, but we tend to think of peer pressure as something that's experienced by teenagers. You know, when they're in high school, everyone's doing it. Why don't you do it too? 
Well, maybe it doesn't come like that to us all the time, but the reality is that we experience all sorts of social pressures all the time. And I'm not saying that social pressure is always bad. It's just that it's always there. There's always this sense of you should conform to the way everyone else is doing it, to the way everyone else is thinking about this. Social pressure is a powerful force. Now, I know I'm dating myself when I say this, but there's a classic episode of Seinfeld that illustrates this. Kramer checks in at the registration table for the AIDS walk. The, the, the lady at the table says, here's your ribbon. He says, ah, uh, no, thanks. I don't think I'm going to wear that. She says, you don't want to wear an AIDS ribbon? Uh, no, but you have to wear one. I have to? Yes. Well, that's why I don't want to. But everyone wears the ribbon. You must wear the ribbon. He says, you know what you are? You're a ribbon bully. And then later in the middle of the walk, someone else says, hey, where's your ribbon? Oh, I don't wear the ribbon. Someone else pipes up. Oh, you don't wear the ribbon? Aren't you against AIDS? Yeah, I'm against AIDS. I'm walking, aren't I? Another lady pipes up. Who do you think you are? Someone else chimes in. Put the ribbon on. There's this massive pressure. Look, if you don't do this, you're going to be shamed in some way. Now, that was 30 years ago. But that type of public pressure or that pressure to conform and just do what we tell you to do is everywhere today. It's only become more pronounced. Now, just so you know, I'm not singling out any particular cause. But the pressure to conform to not just the acceptance of X, Y, or Z, but to champion it is the kind of thing we can expect. And the truth is that many of these causes are actually antithetical to the Christian faith. And sometimes we might be the only one who says, you know what, I'm actually not going to go along with that. I don't think that. So we can and should expect to be faced with decisions where we will have to choose between our allegiance to God and our desire for the approval of man. And the thing we need to know at the outset is that genuine discipleship has always been a minority religion. Look, we're always going to be in the minority if we say, I'll follow Christ and no one else. And the world will simply not understand your Christian convictions, many of them. When Peter speaks to the immorality of his day and his culture, he says this, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, what Peter is saying is what really matters is not how you're judged by others. What really matters is how you're judged by God. They might be surprised you don't think the way they think. They might be surprised you don't join them in the behaviors they're doing. So we have to to come to understand that. We have to make that choice between our allegiance to God and our desire for the approval of man. Well, there's another kind of pressure that we see here. It's, It's what I would call the pressure of syncretism. Motivated by jealousy and hatred, a group of Chaldeans approach the king. And they tell him that there are some Jews 
under his dominion who refused to worship this golden image. They refused to participate in the king's edict. So verses 14 and 15 say it this way. Nebuchadnezzar answered, or sorry, this is after now these individuals have come and they've singled out these three individuals. Verses 14 and 15 then say, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horp, the horp, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. What you need to know is that the Babylonians actually did not care if you continued to worship the Lord. Those exiles that they brought from Israel, if they said, look, we're going to continue to worship the Lord, that was okay. As long as you also worshiped their gods. It's the pressure of syncretism. So Nebuchadnezzar kind of gives them a second chance. He's going to bring the orchestra back for an encore performance. He says, okay, guys, look, this time when they start playing, just fall down and worship the golden image and everything will be okay. You know, I think that a lot of Christians today would say something like, well, you know what they should have done? Is outwardly they should have bowed down, but you know, in their hearts and in their minds, they should have just been worshiping the Lord. I mean, wouldn't that be a clever thing to do? They could have just done some sort of cultural accommodation. Syncretism is a great temptation today. You know, don't get all bent out of shape about whatever the outward practice might be. Just keep your faith between you and God. No one has to be the wiser. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rightly recognized that this was a first commandment issue. In case you've forgotten, that first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. A few weeks back, I told you that there are really three different ways that we can relate to culture. or We can respond to different things in our culture. We need to learn to receive what is good in our culture. We need to learn to reject what is bad in our culture. And we need to seek to redeem what is broken in our culture. Well, in this case, this is something that they had to reject. They could not, in good conscience, offer any kind of outward worship to this golden image. We simply will not participate in this, regardless of what form it takes. And sometimes we have to draw a hard line about some things and say, you know what, this is a first commandment issue. I have no other gods but one. So that's the kind of pressures that we might face. Pressure that comes from authority, the pressure of conformity, and the pressure of syncretism. So how are we supposed to respond to the various pressures we face? And what I would say is that we need to learn to resist the pressure to conform. The Apostle Paul gives us this clear counsel in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed. One paraphrase of that verse says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, maybe that's easier said than done to resist that kind of pressure. So I want to point out three ways that we can learn to resist the pressure to conform. And the first thing we need to do, I think, is we need to learn to laugh at the world's objects of worship. The idea here is that we need to see things as they really are, and that when we see them as they really are, we will see how ridiculous it is that people worship these things. There's a bit of a comedic element here in Daniel chapter 3. The punchline is actually delivered right at the very beginning in verse 1, where it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Right? This whole thing revolves around something that was simply made at the whim of the king. This is man-made religion at its pinnacle. Now, maybe you picked it up as I read it, but there's a lot of repetition in this chapter. And you might think that's a product of just sort of ancient hillbilly writing or something like that. It's not. It's by design. Notice the phrase set up that gets repeated throughout this chapter. We see it firstly in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That phrase, he set it up, gets repeated again in verse 2. It gets repeated twice in verse 3. It's there in verse 5. It's there again in verse 7. The whole time, the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, this is no God at all. It's something that has just been set up by the king. So how are we supposed to view this object of worship? Something that is made and set up. By Nebuchadnezzar, it's nothing, at least nothing worthy of our worship. Then there's also the repetition of the lists. Rather than saying Nebuchadnezzar gathered together all of his officials, verse 2 says, The king, then King Nebuchadnezzar, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then that entire list is repeated again in verse 3. And then there's the repetition of the musical instruments, right? I read it for you several times. Verse 4. Or verse 5. That when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up up gets repeated a couple of times and then lastly when the three men are before nebuchadnezzar himself that's what he says to them right i'm calling the band the band's getting back together they're going to play for you and when you hear it this time when you hear the sound of the horn the pipe the lyre the trigon the harp the bagpipe and every kind of music you're to fall down and worship it's as if they're going to say oh well now that you know we're really hearing that combination of the the horn the pipe the Ligon or whatever it's the trigon right now we're ready to worship this thing all this pomp and circumstance 
See, there's nothing in the image itself to inspire worship. And so they have to create this whole hype show around it as if to kind of build it up. Got to generate enthusiasm to worship this image. Now, I have nothing against them per se, but when I think about this kind of pomp and circumstance, I can't help but think of the Hollywood award shows. I mean, everyone is dressed in the highest of high fashion as they strut down the red carpet to the delight of the paparazzi who's, you know, photographing them. There's a kind of self-congratulatory air about the whole production, especially the speeches. Right? Look how important we are. Here's my views on X, Y, or Z. There are professional seat fillers so that if someone has to get up and use the bathroom, no one in the TV audience will be subjected to seeing an empty seat there. Right? It's all this production. Look how into it everyone is. At least that's the way it worked in the pre-COVID era. And lots of people worship all of that. And we should learn to laugh at it. Now, I know the same could be said for all of the worship that goes on in relation to sports. I mean, there's all this hype around it. In the end, it's nothing worth worshiping. C.S. Lewis had a way of getting to the root of an issue by pointing out the ridiculousness of it. And he once had this to say about the idolatry of sex in his day. He said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Now, today, judging by people's Instagram posts, I think we can conclude that both sex and food are people's idols, right? But I mean, this is, this is the thing. Reveal it for what it is. It's nothing. We ought to laugh at it and say that's not worthy of worship at all. Second way we can learn to resist is to trust in God's power even when you don't know God's plan. And this is what we see in the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar says, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's a rhetorical question. He's really saying, look, there's no God who can rescue you from what I'm about to do to you. But the answer that they give in verses 16 to 18 is so profound. Here's what it says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Right? You don't even need to bother getting the band to play. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, there's a lot to unpack in their words. First off, it's clear. They affirm God's power to save them. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us 
from the burning, fiery furnace. These three men trusted in God's power. Now, where did their confidence come from? Well, it may have come from the fact that they knew about God's past dealings with his people. That God is a rescuing God. Listen to the way Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt was earlier described by Moses. Deuteronomy 4, it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance as you are this day. Right? They could look back and say, you know what? God rescued his people from the iron furnace in the past. Surely he could rescue us from this burning furnace. Or listen to how the prophet Isaiah spoke about God's presence with and deliverance of his people. In Isaiah chapter 43, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Right, so they can look back and say, you know what? In the past, here's what God has done. He has rescued his people. Even from those type of fiery situations. Now, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say what they say here, they're really affirming two truths about God that every one of us needs to understand. Those two truths are firstly that God is able And secondly, that he may choose not to deliver us. This is what I mean by saying we ought to trust in God's power even when we don't know his plan. He may choose to deliver us in this way. He may not. We know that God can deliver us from this. We just don't know if he will. Now, those who subscribe to the prosperity gospel will tell you that it's a sign of weak faith to pray that way. And if that's your way of thinking, then you face a problem when deliverance doesn't come. When deliverance doesn't come, you're left with two options. Then one option is that you reject the faith altogether. God didn't do what I expected him to do. Therefore, he must not be real or he must not love me. So we end up either doubting God's power or we end up doubting his goodness. The other option that gets touted by prosperity preachers is that you just need to re-up. You just need to double down on your faith. You just didn't believe hard enough. If you don't experience the deliverance or blessing or healing you prayed for, it must be because you didn't have enough faith. I actually think the opposite is true. I think the greater faith is the kind of faith demonstrated here by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look, we know our God is able to deliver us from your hands. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your gods. See, I like that. They're not going to pretend to know the mind of God, what he's going to do. They don't know his plan. They believe in the power of God. They believe in the goodness of God. What they doubt is their ability to know what is ultimately best in that situation. Look, This is a, a key part of our faith. We understand that not everything works out according to our plans. That even though God is able, he may not do what we want him to do. The book of Habakkuk is filled with the suffering that Israel was experiencing at the very end of that book or right near the end of it. It contains these words, Though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What, what he's saying there is, even if things do not turn out the way I would want them to, even if I don't have an abundance of crops, even if you don't bless me in this way, I will still rejoice in my God. Listen to how Job expressed his faith in the midst of his own suffering. He said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So that's, the, that's what we need to do as well. We need to say, look, I, I may not understand what God is doing, but I know his character and I've learned to trust in him. I know that God is able. I don't know if he'll necessarily do it in this situation. So we need to affirm both of those things. Third way that we can learn to resist is to be assured of God's presence. So Nebuchadnezzar has these three, three friends bound and thrown into the burning furnace that's heated to its maximum capacity. And to his amazement, when he looks in, he sees four men and not three. Now, the identity of that extra individual has led to lots of speculation. Was this the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Or was it just a, a regular angel, a son of the gods, as Nebuchadnezzar later guesses? Well, the, the truth is the text doesn't actually tell us. And I actually don't think it matters. Whether this was an angel or the angel, the point is the same. God does not leave his servants alone in the midst of their trial. And the truth is that God could have intervened earlier. I mean, he could have spared them from this whole ordeal in the first place. But remember, there is no promise that's given to Christians that we will be spared from trials. There's no indication that a life of following Jesus will be free from all trouble. In fact, often just the opposite is true. The decision we make to follow Jesus means that we experience this kind of external pressure. But what we are assured of is that Jesus will be with us. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, obviously, this story has a happy ending of sorts. I mean, God rescues these three individuals from the fiery furnace. But I think what we're supposed to see is that God is present with them in their trial. And that's the good news that ought to comfort us as well in the midst of our difficult times. God has promised us, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So we need to be assured of God's presence. We do not experience what we experience alone. He's with us. Jesus' parting words to his disciples before his ascension were, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, when we face our trials, when we face our difficult set of circumstances and issues, we ought to be assured that God is present with us in the midst of those things. Let's pray together. 
Father, we just recognize that we live uh, in a world that is sometimes hostile to you and sometimes hostile to your followers. Sometimes we don't experience that to this kind of degree, but we experience it all the same. And sometimes we are hesitant to experience it, hesitant to speak up because we don't know what consequences that might bring. And we feel like we're all alone in a workplace, in a family, in whatever situation we might find ourselves in. And yet, Lord, we know that you are with us. We have declared that you are our God, that we will serve no other besides you. And so, Lord, we pray you'd give us the courage to live that out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.